Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us now with a broader picture of the emerging markets is Carmen Reinhardt. She is at Harvard Kennedy School, but far more than that has been our most astute academic on the linkages of the developed world to emerging markets. Carmen, John and Lisa really want to dive into emerging markets. I totally agree with them. But I've got to ask you, in your magisterial effort with Ken Rogoff, back to the Spanish Armada, I remember reading your chapter on this time is different in the Spanish Armada. What does your tome say about pandemics? What, in your study of 800 years with Ken, what did you learn about pandemics? Uh, Tom, I recently wrote a piece for for a project syndicate basically saying this time it's truly different because we haven't lacked pandemic uh, in history, but the kind of policy reaction to try to save lives by basically shutting down economies is, this is, this is, this time is different. It's new. So the idea of Using past pandemics to throw light on what's going on, I don't think it will work. The major one, the influenza of 1918, was during World War I. We had 9% real GDP growth in 1918 because of the war effort, not because, you know, there were measures like what we're seeing taken today. So it's limited, very limited, what we can draw. Professor Reinhardt, Adam Tooze, a Columbia professor, wrote a piece for foreign policy that was pretty stark, and it said the coronavirus is the biggest emerging markets crisis ever, saying that the pandemic is starting to topple one of the pillars of the globalization era. His argument was that this time is different, as you say, in part because the developed market, the developed world, cannot assist the emerging markets right now, given what we're seeing. Do you agree with him that this is the biggest crisis ever facing that, that sector? Well, it's certainly as big as the 1930s, which was very big. Uh, and it has the added dimension that it goes well beyond its origins are not in the economy, but its origins are in health. So, yes, it's, it's, it's a stark, stark situation. Professor Jonathan here, we've talked many times, just to jump in if I can, forgive me. We've talked many times about dollar-denominated debt building up in emerging markets over the last 10 years or so. Are you starting to see those problems materialize now in the face of a stronger dollar, a shutdown in various economies, and a collapse for the backdrop going forward from here? Uh, Look, it's a... The overused term perfect storm does apply because don't forget that underlying as the coronavirus wasn't big enough. We also have the Saudi-Russia war. Many of these countries are commodity producers, oil producers and commodity producers. So they have, going to your question, a massive shortage of dollars because their exports, the, the, the export values are way down, export volumes are down, and they do have dollar debt. So the expectation that debt servicing uh, and debt and defaults and restructurings are going to be on the rise is is something to 
you know, be expected. We thought many people, not including myself, but many people would come on this program, Professor, and question dollar privacy, dollar hegemony <clears throat> in the next economic downturn. Are we finding out that the dollar is the place to be once again, even in this downturn? Well, uh, funny you should mention that Ethan Ilsetsky, a former student, Ken Rogoff and I have had several recent pieces on this very issue. And indeed, what we find is that in the 10 years after the 2008-2009 financial meltdown, uh, the dollar gained a lot of ground internationally as the reserve currency for two reasons. One is uh, the euro uh, fell back. Uh, concerns about its sustainability, uh, it, it fell back. It, it, and the second is uh, Chinese lending, which was has been massive all over the world, is dollar-denominated. So it's Chinese, but it's not in renminbi for the most part. It's in dollars. So the dollar, yes, it's the dominant currency and no evidence to the contrary at this stage. So, Professor... But dialing this forward from a market's perspective, dollar-denominated emerging markets debt just had its worst quarter since 1998. Are we going to see more of the same and a rash of defaults that rivals what we saw during the 1980s in Latin America? It's very possible. It's very possible. Now, uh, I, I have been hoping that the international community, the multilaterals with the major governments, uh, move towards a uh, a debt standstill, a, you know, a moratorium uh, before the defaults materialize. Because after all, the, everybody's incomes, this has at the household, at the firm level, at the country level, has been paralyzed. So debt payments should also likewise be temporarily uh, suspended, but absent that, it, it, it's already it's already happening. You're seeing the down the the downgrades in the credit rating agencies with uh, countries moving into junk and near junk uh, status. Carmen, always great to get your thoughts on this program. We appreciate your time this morning. Our thoughts with you and yours, Carmen Reinhardt, there, Harvard Kennedy School professor. introduction to our esteemed guest. He has his The View of America more than anyone I know. Mohammed Yunus with us of the acclaimed Gallup polling organization. Mohammed, you don't look at the horse races. You look at the fabric of the country. It's a country flat on its back. What portion of America can't get to the next rent payment? According to our estimates, uh, and based on the polling we were doing last week, 29% of, empo- of those employed say that the employers cut jobs, reduced hours, frozen hiring. 52% say that the fi- their financial situation has already been affected by this. A third of the 175 <clears throat> million workers in the U.S. cannot get to the next paycheck. They're living literally paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. That's 60 to 40 million Americans, um, and that's just the workers. So you can imagine their families. Uh, right. At this point, I think even with reporting just this morning out of Italy, on some of the social unrest that now is becoming a concern. Um, I think after we all think through the public health issues, what we're trying to do at Gallup is also track how Americans are feeling um, and the impact this will right. have on uh, social just disintegration, unfortunately, in some situations. 
I'm coming to you, Mohammed, from uh, Central Park in New York. It is an island of prosperity. I'm looking down at Billionaire's Row with seven skyscrapers. This is not America. What is the distance of Governor Cuomo's New York State or Washington or even the burgeoning crisis in Atlanta or Miami and Boston? What's the distance of those urban areas in this pandemic from the rest of a more rural, more suburban America? Um, we always see very dramatic differences. Um, one thing to point out, you mentioned Governor Cuomo, uh, and a lot has been made about uh, uh, leadership and how leadership is doing in this crisis. We consistently find that Americans are much more positive on their local government at any level compared to the federal government. Um, Americans are now most in approval of uh, healthcare workers and their local hospitals in this crisis. Um, how Americans react to the situation, of course, depends on what's happening locally. It's interesting that the federal government apparently today is going to roll out um, guidelines on how local governments can also react based on their local reality. Uh, this is a huge country. Um, when we talk about the United States, you're ultimately talking about you know 50 different countries uh, with different realities. The economic hurt that's happening across the country. And now, you know, even with the social distancing, uh, you know, seven to eight out of 10 Americans on pretty much every metric now are basically social distancing. When we started tracking this, it was only about 20% of people that said they were really changing their lives. Um, at this point, everything is kind of off. Uh, so the reality of not being able to make that paycheck vis-a-vis the public health concerns, even just locally, I think are going to become the crux of the issue for leadership, um, and it's what we're going to track very closely. The other thing is just the well-being. I mean, uh, we've seen now reports of domestic violence uh, increasing in some localities. How people are managing the stress uh, of not only the economic challenges but also uh, trying to juggle work if you can virtually, uh, having children at home, not having educational institutions operating. All of these things we know from our research uh, from other crises over long yeah. time over yeah. the past three decades have a real impact on how society yeah. Paul, let me report here on online learning at the King household. <laughs> We're in a free period, and Minecraft is being played. And Minecraft is being played. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Mohammed, give us a sense of you know how much longer does the, the most Americans feel like this will go on, this coronavirus disruption? This- at this point, 51% of Americans think that this will go on for a few months. Uh, actually, excuse me, 56%. The numbers are coming in daily. We started off uh, with uh, about half of Americans expecting it to go on for a few months. These numbers actually predate President Trump's um, change of course, if you will, in extending uh, the isolation guidelines. So we probably would expect that number to go up. Um, that being said, Americans are also overwhelmingly in support of the rescue package compared to other uh, uh, stimulus packages like TARP and, and in other situations of crisis. T- today, 77% of Americans approve of it. It's bipartisan approval. Actually, Democrats, 82%, 81%, uh, are mostly, uh, are more likely to support it than, than Republicans. Um, it, but this, again, it gets back to um, what the larger picture means, I think, for people's pocketbooks, 61% of Americans right now think it's very likely 
that the United States, that this will send the United States into a recession, if you will. So mm-hmm. people are really planning for the worst or expecting the worst. Right. Uh, whether they have the wherewithal to really get through it, I think is really up for grabs. Um, and oh. in terms of the, the local learning or uh, telelearning, I actually just came up and my four-year-old is on a Zoom meeting with his other students uh, and teachers. And even just for education, it's, it's amazing how a lot of this was possible before technologically. Uh, but again, we see a situation where the crisis pushes us over the edge. <clears throat> right, right, right. This has been hugely valuable. Muhammad Yunus, thank you so much for your good work at Gallup uh, today. Oliver Chen is in the securities analyst business, one of those wonderful people that not only writes the reports, but actually goes in the stores. He can't go in the stores now. They're all closed. He is with Cowan and joins us today. Oliver, there's an American Eagle two blocks down from our world headquarters. It's closed. How critical is it they open as soon as possible? It's really critical just because the majority of sales still happen in store. So for all these retailers, they're in survival mode because their their number one source of revenue is is at risk and for the foreseeable future. There's so much uncertainty. I mean, the employees furloughed across Macy's Gap and Kohl's. Um, it, it's, it's uncertain when stores will open. As we pull executives, it could be four or more months. And our analysis wow. indicates that uh, liquidity is at risk after five. So... One in four Americans work in retail, and, and retail really plays wow. an important part in the consumer. Uh, so that this is something we're watching, and we continue to see a bifurcation where uh, people who need household essentials and food and beverages, that's really obviously working. Discretionary purchases are, are less important, and at-home fitness is working too. Oliver, there's a huge amount of confusion at the moment over whether SMEs who decided to furlough employees before the aid became available from Washington, D.C., whether they're eligible for any of those loans, any of those grants um, from the fiscal aid package that went through over last week. Are they? Have you got any clarity on that whatsoever? Yeah, I think as I talk to CEOs and um my contacts in the business, everybody's analyzing it closely and, and logging on and looking um, with, with no c- specific conclusion. So I think it's a, it's a point of transition where, where people are really seeking out what, what, uh, what's available. Also, um, when you furlough a worker, uh, there's different standards by state regarding unemployment. So I, I don't think there's a, a blanket answer regarding um, allocating these resources to where they're needed most. Um, to, to be frank, and we're just seeing all kinds of different efforts to support workers and, and places of business in the time of need. More than 500,000. That is the number of furloughed or laid off retail employees in the United States. Big retailers across the board closing down. And I'm looking right now at some of the names, Victoria's Secret. Uh, I'm looking at Gap, Neiman Marcus. I'm struggling to understand how much this entire episode is going to force companies that were already struggling to the break. I mean, how much is just accelerating a process that would have been underway already with some of these struggling retailers versus actually killing really viable and and strong and frankly thriving businesses? Yeah, I I agree with you. Uh, Regarding what's happening next, it's the big getting bigger. So we're moving towards a world of Walmart, Target, Amazon, and then mega players like LVMH. So consolidation is one key theme. With, with related M&A of some good brands that aren't necessarily as profitable 
for our good valuations. Um, two, I think we'll see store closures and permanent changes in malls. We already had struggling malls, about 25 to 30% or more of malls um, are B and C class, and that's a big issue. And then rethinking rent. Um, the, the rent expenses will need to come down, um, and this will a lot depend on the pace of recovery. So going forward, um, we believe stores will be closed until May at least, if not longer, uh, and the pace of the consumer coming back will be a big question mark. Is it V, U, or L? And that will matter uh, for long-term viability. But department stores were already struggling. The big theme I also want to mention is, is curbside pickup and rethinking retail in terms of contactless and what does experiential mean in a contactless world. Yeah. So we've already been seeing the digital innovation with zero checkout and curbside pickup. That's accelerating by a couple of years now. Oliver, I want to pick up on the consolidation theme that you talked about. Gap, for example, uh, offered information to employees about getting jobs at Walmart. I'm wondering, I mean, what kind of consolidation? What are some names that you see? I mean, is Walmart going to go by Gap? Anything can happen. I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, Walmart is the biggest grocer, and it also sells lots of soft goods and essentials. 55% of the business is grocery and Amazon grocery and apparel um, and, and, and rethinking and Amazon's even interested in luxury goods. So uh, retail has really been fueled by scale because uh, even before this, the digital investments, the supply chain investments, the need for speed um, has really been the domain and easier for larger players. The artificial intelligence data, uh, rethinking data, um, scale matters for the training models and the algorithms. So that's something to think of, and, and anything can happen. I think every retailer is working together, and this is also a time for the industry to come together uh, to reallocate resources where they're needed. And clearly, um, there's so many stockouts, and labor is necessary as the whole country gets uh -huh. ready. Oliver, I know John wants to take this in a different direction, you know, as we look at retail across America. Uh, we had a, a listener uh, call in, Vetville, was barking earlier, and Vetville wants to know, our dog, wants to know, what are we going to do with Chewy? I mean, Chewy's hugely successful. Is Chewy a no-brainer for Amazon? Well, I think the, the reality is this at-home experience and taking care of your dogs and also Health and wellness is a huge theme, and rethinking wellness, um, a, you know, stock we like is Peloton. I was just on the bike, and also we're seeing uh, concepts like Neo U. Yeah, I was on the bike, like too. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, and, you know, life will be about um, self-care as well. Out of the, oh, listen out of the to you. <laughs> okay, okay, folks. I just got, we're going to stop the show here. We got time to do this. John, the number one argument of the last three days in our isolation, our kingdom of isolation, is someone within the house has demanded we get a Peloton. What happens when um, the gym reopens again? That's what I said. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. I, I think a lot of people think in the <clears> same way. One thing that I think might change, yeah. though, Oliver, and it came up in conversations that I was having recently as well, the rush to go to services like Rent the Runway through 2019, where you essentially are sharing clothes with a monthly subscription. Of course, yeah, those clothes point. are cleaned. Yeah. Oliver, many companies were looking at following Rent the Runway's practice through last year and the great success it had. Are we going to start to question that in a massive way as we come through this and come out of it? Well, as we come out of it, I think what will happen is we have a, a consumer that's going to be laser-focused on value. So as you think about rental and um, 
and what, what it can do as well as re-commerce, it's 40 to 80% off. So we already had uh, the TJ Maxx's of the world be really successful in taking share from Macy's and full price department stores. But, you know, repricing these goods and offering value, of course, Rent the Runway has <clears throat> a very sophisticated cleaning facility. Right. Uh, and I, I think people will want less stuff. I think people will care about sustainability and the environment. And everybody's rethought um, what experiential means in terms of uh, staying home and, and spending time with uh, with loved ones and others. Oliver Chen, always great to get your thoughts on a show. Come and see your equity research analyst on the Retail Outlook and on social distancing. Let's get to the first conversation of the morning, shall we? Pleased to say that Shahab Jalanoush joins us now, Credit Suisse Head of FX and Macro Trading Strategy. Shahab, always great to get you on the program. Let's talk about it, shall we, Shahab? Dollar strength back on the table. Last week, we thought there were some signs of success from the Federal Reserve. Are we seeing signs of stress once again? I don't think so. I think what we're seeing right now uh, is a much-anticipated month's end flow linked to changing hedge ratios, which this month happened to mean that uh, dollar buying is in order. Uh, there's, there's an anticipation that once this is out of the way, uh, the market will start to look again uh, at the underlying drivers of the dollar at this point. And that, for now, more broadly seems to be the capacity of the Fed in particular to, to provide dollars to the market via its various facilities, but also hopes for more U.S. fiscal stimulus, which historically would have been seen as a dollar positive. But at the moment, um, this is seen as something that, again, helps put more dollars into the system. So as long as these factors are driving the market, I would imagine uh, dollar strength to be relatively uh, short term. Uh, and then after that, for the dollar to again start to trade in line with markets more broadly. If we're settling for the end of the first quarter, what is your positioning for the beginning of the second quarter? What is the Jalanu's strategy, given the total chaos we're living in? It's, it's obviously a very tactical market. We can't pretend to try to have a, a, a fully strategic position uh, for an entire quarter when realized volatility is as, is as high as it is. We're taking each week as it comes at this point. Uh, what I would say, though, is that uh, the markets already uh, are pricing in fairly negative outcomes uh, for the second quarter in terms of data. So to undershoot these negative outcomes uh, in terms of actual outcomes is actually going to be quite a tall order now at this point. Um, and I do believe that there's still more of a focus at this point on the possibility of more stimulus measures. For example, Japan has just announced uh, or is looking at announcing a, a very large package of its own as well. So as these come through, I believe that these still help, uh, at least within the G10 space, the pro-risk currencies, the likes of the Australian dollar, uh, the Canadian dollar, uh, in the very near term. Um, but I think in the, in the medium term, to see a real turnaround uh, in these types of currencies, we do need to see other factors come through. So for example, we do need to see oil prices base. We do need to see virus uh, infection growth rates come down so that markets can believe uh, transport around the world can resume again. These are the types of things that are still the big unknowns from a medium-term perspective. So those helicopters that Tom Keane talks about all week and has been talking about uh, for the past few weeks, dropping money uh, into his triple triple leverage cash fund, they're going to continue. And in the short term, maybe that won't necessarily debase the dollar. Over the long term, though, how does the U.S. get out of this other than just printing money and leading to inflation and a debasement of the dollar? 
Well, look, I think the, the key here is, you know, FX at the end of the day is still a, a relative price. Um, and the truth of the matter is all the other central banks are doing the same thing in one form or another. In fact, even what you know, would have been seen as, as very difficult a few years ago, which is emerging markets uh, doing quantitative easing um, without necessarily seeing their currencies getting crushed. You know, that's also happening right now. So... Um, across a broad range of emerging markets. So the truth of the matter is it's, it's very difficult to look at the dollar in isolation from that perspective, given that everyone else is doing the same thing. So when we talk about debasement, it could be the case that we see down the line a general rise in price levels uh, around the world mm-hmm. on a basis. That's not necessarily going to mean that the dollar falls against other currencies uh, in, a, in a material way, um, given that that is a very common policy at this point in time. If someone comes to you, Shahab, and says, I have a belief oil will recover in some way or form, what is the best way to express strong oil? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at things like futures prices, um, futures, because the situation is that there's so little storage available for oil right now, um, it means that futures prices uh, are actually much higher than spot prices. Uh, and therefore, trying to buy you know, oil for future delivery through futures, for example, uh, you'll be paying a much higher price than the spot price anyway. So um, I'm not sure that there is a very efficient and simple way of getting around this conundrum. Um, if you have access to cheap storage, you could try to buy... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have that. Material. We've, yeah. moved, um, we've moved afterthought out. We're putting the tankers <laughs> in our bedroom. Barrels of oil, John. We're not all big players, Shahab. We can't go and get a super tanker. Barrels, I say. <laughs> Let's talk about foreign um, exchange. Let's yeah. talk about foreign exchange and what you're seeing in the data out of China. Some confusion in the PMIs. The PMIs, it's not the twin of GDP. It's a derivative of GDP. And all you're asking people in China at the moment, are things better this month than last month? And the answer to that question is Yes. But does that mean output has recovered what it lost in February? The answer to that is no. So, Shahab, talk to me about the trajectory you're looking for for the Chinese economy. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. So according to our, our Credit Suisse China economist, um, by his calculations, all the, all the big jump in the PMI shows in March is that uh, the level of activity is now only 29 uh, is now only 25% below uh, its peak levels as opposed to 29% in February. So it's still a long way down. It's just improved a bit. Uh, so in that context, we don't believe that the Chinese currency is on the verge of, of, uh, of a dramatic recovery at this point. Uh, ultimately, China just this week cut rates again uh, and added more money to the system. Again, to your point around helicopter money, um, you know, even in China, where there is already a, a large, or people fear, uh, a large debt problem potentially brewing down the line. What's still going on is, is more money being pumped into the system. So uh, we do believe that that will keep the renminbi somewhat contained. Uh, and what applies to the renminbi applies across the emerging market space. Uh, so for those looking for a dollar turnaround, it's easier in our view to play that uh, within the G10 complex, within uh, the higher quality currencies, you could say, uh, than some of the the, the riskier currencies at this point in time that are still plagued by weak growth, um, 
China is one of those, I guess. But, uh, but again, in LATAM as well, for example, um, plagued by weak growth, but have maybe weaker underlying fundamentals at a structural level as well, and are still experimenting with, with quantitative easing as well in some cases. Brazil is another one that might do this, for example. So these, these put huge question marks, these kinds of issues around yeah. uh, these riskier currencies. Shahab, always great to get your thoughts on a program. Our best to you and yours. Shahab Jalanus, Credit Suisse's head of FX and macro trading strategy. Let's begin our labor analysis. Normally, folks, we really wouldn't do this on a Tuesday, but we're going to do it today. Break the rules with Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives, quoted, I believe, in the Washington Post lead article this morning on the American economy. Julia, good morning. Uh, what number do we expect Thursday on claims? Is it a guess or can you come up with some form of statistic? Well, it's a guess. Uh, it's, it is the leading indicator. So all we're basing it on is um, the reports that we're getting from individual states. But it looks like we're going to have another record-breaking number. So the 3.2 million last week is not a one-off. We're probably going to see another maybe 2 million in claims this week. Um, and that's going to translate into many millions uh, loss of payrolls in the April report, not the report due out this Friday, but the following report that comes in early May. Julia, the expectations are getting increasingly dire. Goldman Sachs came out with a forecast uh, a couple weeks ago saying the U.S. will shrink by an annualized 24% in the second quarter. Now coming out saying it's going to be 34% and saying unemployment will soar to 15% by mid-year. What are you right. looking for in the data to either confirm that dire view or that perhaps gives you a sense of what we're looking at? So claims is, is probably one of the more reliable indicators we have right now and, and timely. Uh, so I think how high it goes and how persistent that is. Um, obviously, in this episode, we're bringing forward a contraction um, in a really unusual way. Um, so the duration of this matters a lot. And then how much it spills over from the immediately impacted sectors, hotels, restaurants, uh, the travel industry into other sectors uh, is something that we're going to be watching for. So high frequency indicators are much more valuable uh, than than usual in the current context. You say bringing forward a contraction and when people talk about how unusual this is, a forced shutdown in order to fight a pandemic. Do we have any sense or are the numbers going to give us any clues as to how quickly some of these people can get their jobs back? You know, it really is going to be uh, dependent on how effective all of these stimulus measures are. So I think with the $2 trillion and the $4 trillion in, in fiscal uh, stimulus and the $4 trillion in lending capacity at the Fed, how quickly can that get out the door? How much, how effectively does that serve as a bridge loan for businesses so that they can stay in business and restart operations in a timely way? Um, I don't think it's going to be a V. Uh, the shutdowns may start to end, but then I think we're going to resume normal activity very cautiously and gradually. Um, so I think it's going to be more of a U. Um, once we really get to uh, address this virus and test and develop a uh, vaccine, then we can really resume activity with, con- with confidence. And that probably won't be till next year. Julia, on a program like this, we're really fortunate to have one of the most sophisticated, smart audiences I think there is anywhere in the world of media. 
worldwide on a program like Bloomberg Surveillance, but we have a broader audience when things get stressful in markets and we have the kind of mm-hmm. drawdown we've had over the last couple of weeks. And I think we need to do a better job of trying to translate what the Fed is actually doing. So a headline just tro- crossed the Bloomberg just moments ago, and I'll read it out verbatim. It said, the Fed is launching a temporary repo facility with foreign central banks. The facility mm-hmm. allows central banks to repo treasuries for dollars. The facility is an alternative dollar source to selling securities. Can you translate what they're doing for a much wider audience and why they're doing what they're doing. So um, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Um, It's um, how we uh, engage in international trade. It's it's contracted and executed in dollars. So what we often see in a crisis is that there's a shortage of dollars globally. Um, A lot of borrowing and commerce and investing is done in dollars. Uh, and when you have a dollar crunch like that, it can turn from, you know, a recession or a contraction in activity into a financial crisis very quickly um, because the dollar shortage can trigger defaults and uh, deleveraging. So I think this is what the Fed is trying to address by providing that dollar liquidity uh, through global central banks. We did that with the swap lines. Now we're doing it with repo. Um, so I think it's, again, trying to short circuit this what is clearly going to be a deep and painful recession from becoming a full-blown financial crisis and that's been the objective of all of these um, various activities that the fed has been engaged in and to follow on from john's well-framed question dr coronado is the idea here is to get out in front of crisis and as we've all studied that crisis comes from emerging markets are are we at a point where the emerging markets in dollar shortage are so fragile and they don't have the power against the great reserve currency that they're going to need imf assistance soonest um more than likely we will see some countries in that level of distress um, again, I think that the Fed has been very aggressive very early. So that was one of the lessons learned from 2008. You don't hold your ammunition back. Um, and I think that will help. Um, uh, but nonetheless, I think we're already seeing signs of distress. And, um, you know, the, the, this is unfolding with unprecedented speed. Uh, so, you know, whereas, as you were saying earlier, Tom, just a few months ago, the picture looked pretty benign. Um, boy, have things changed. And so um, I think even some of all of these efforts um, aren't likely to be universally effective in, in preventing all distress. There will be distress in some countries. And back in the U.S., there's a question about the world's largest economy and the safety net that the consumer had, the strong consumer, uh, where some reports towards the stock of Deutsche Bank in particular are coming out and saying they don't have on average to cover an emergency and people are looking to the April 1st rent, uh, which may or may not get paid. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of just the sort of resources of the consumer right now, how strong the household balance sheet is heading into this? Well, I think this is where the distribution of income is relevant. Um, We households have strong balance sheets, but those strong balance sheets are concentrated at the high end of the income spectrum. Meanwhile, it is the lower end of the income spectrum that is most vulnerable and experiencing the greatest job losses. So um, many households, most households don't even have $400 set aside okay. for an emergency. Well, um, so at least so, so those, so- those households can't pay rent on April 1st. 
Lisa, I'm so glad you brought this up. But Dr. Coronado, you go right to the heart of the matter. Everyone listening to this to the show, with or without means, maybe they have family members that can't get that four hundred dollars of that rent check for April. Why yeah. is our politics pussyfooting around with an alphabet soup of politically generated programs? What we need yeah. is yeah. massive income yeah. substitution. Yes, abso- you're absolutely right, Tom. And some other countries have been much more aggressive on that front, providing rent and mortgage payment holidays for their consumers for a number of months. That is what you need to bridge uh, this cash crunch for consumers. Uh, and we have not where, seen that kind come of on, you're, Julia, you're a huge student of history on this. Where, where did this come from? Is this some Lockean Calvinist ethos from the 19th century? Is it some uh, pseudo-Victorian psychology? People, and, uh, I mean, folks, this is Republicans and Democrats. they got to pay the rent. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I don't, I can't explain the political rationale for this, Tom. Um, and even the Fed has it in its power to be more aggressive on this front. They could mandate, uh, a, they have issued supervisory guidance to banks to encourage forbearance and um, payment holidays. They could be a little bit more forceful on that front and really find a way to finance a payment holiday for agency mortgages and sort of mandate it for the banks and figure out the financing uh, that's required. I think we could see a stronger effort from the Fed to set the standard there uh, and get that, use the financing in a mm-hmm. creative way to address that cash crunch. Uh, and I hope that's the direction they, they start to go in because uh, it certainly is within their power. Julia, thank you. And thank you for your contribution this you. morning. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Julia Coronado there, Macro Policy Perspectives founder and president as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.